0: Now today, friends, our study brings us to the seventh chapter here of Second Kings. You have your Bible and it found the place. We come to what we suggested last time would be one of the most unusual incidents in the life of Elisha. Now you will recall that there was a famine, and it was a very serious famine in the land, and that an ass's head. Imagine eating that, not much meat on it to begin with, and it could only be boiled, I guess, and made into a soup or a stew, but the price of it, they were having inflation in that day, and as a result, why, it was a very serious day, and Elisha then made a very remarkable prophecy, and that opens chapter 7. Now, here is a shortage of food in the land because of the famine. And a famine is an evidence of the judgment of God upon his people. These things are always warnings that come from God. I very frankly believe that the different tragedies that have come to our land in recent years have been a warning to our nation. The earthquake in California... And I must add, the hurricanes in Florida, to sort of balance the budget, and the storms that have been across this land, the many tragedies that have come, I think have been a warning from God. And that's what it was, to his people in that day. Now, I'm reading verse 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time... "...shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel, in the gate of Samaria." Now, this actually means about four pecks would be about a bushel, and one shekel would probably be worth about 65 cents. Now, that means that the inflation is over. And they're having a real discount sale on flour. And how could that come to pass? They were having a famine. Where would the food come from? It would be normal to expect a famine to be over. They would plant seed. And then in a few months' time, they would get a harvest. And then that would ease the famine that was in the land. But that's not the way Elisha told it. Elisha said... Tomorrow, why, the famine will be over. And how can it be over? Because that's just not the way famines get over. Now, what happened? Well, this is what happened. Actually, the hosts of the Syrians were camped outside of Samaria. They have now, as we saw last time, that Ben-Hadad, he had come down against Samaria and besieged it. And added to the famine and to the fact the city was besieged, they were in desperate straits. Now this is the incident, verse three, and there were four leprous men at the entering in of the gate, and they said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? So many people do nothing. I'm afraid there are a great many. Lost people. They say, well, there's nothing I can do. Why sit we here till we die? And then there are a lot of Christians that are sitting down today doing nothing about getting the radio out. I talked to a man in Florida. I'm told that man is worth several million dollars. That man says that he's an avid listener to our radio ministry, and the man has done absolutely nothing toward getting the Word of God out. And I'm told by his church that he gives very little to getting the Word of God out today. It's amazing how people can just sit on the sidelines that are God's people and are doing nothing at all. That disturbs me. Why sit we here till we die? Let's get a move on, friends. Notice what they did. If we say... We will enter into the city, then the famine's in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we'll die. We're going to die anyway, so we just well go into the host of the Syrians. And they rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. Now, there were probably a hundred thousand. And there could have been many more than that number that were there. It was a great host that we were told. And what had happened to them that had been in the camp of the Syrians? Well, what happened? Verse 6, For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, "'Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us.'" And they actually, hearing this noise of the sound of chariots and a horseman, they thought that this was it. And the Syrians, as we've indicated before, The armies in that day did not march in an orderly way as they do today. It was quite haphazard when they came into camp. And Gideon did the same thing. You put them in a panic by this method. And so these people were sure that the enemy had come upon them, and that the Hittites and the Egyptians were there. Wherefore, they arose and fled in the twilight, that is, In the late evening, you see, they thought they've waited now until it's getting dark. And they've come upon us. And so they took off. And by the time they got out of the camp and were well on their way, why, it was dark. And they are not about to stop that evening. They traveled at night. And they were traveling fast. They left their tents and their horses, their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their life. And when these lepers came to the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink, carried fence silver and gold and raiment, and went and hid it, and came again and entered into another tent, and carried fence also and went and hid it. Now in that day an army carried with them all the food. Each soldier got his own food, you see. They didn't eat at a common table. Each one brought his own. And they had an abundance. This was a long campaign. They were besieging Samaria, the city that's on the hill there. They said one to another, after a while, these lepers, they gorged themselves. And they had really gourmet food for as long as they could eat. And they got more gold and silver than they had ever needed. So they began to come to themselves excitement's over. They said one to another, we do not well. This day is the day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. In other words, somebody else may find this camp. And if they do, well, of course, they will kill us. Some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. So what happened? Well, they went and reported and it was hard for the king to believe. And they brought good tidings. And you can be sure and a famine that is in the land. Of course, there's a great spiritual lesson that is shared for us today. You and I at this moment are enjoying the Word of God. At least I trust you're enjoying the Word of God. And may I say, from my end, I'm enjoying it. I love to go through the Bible. I love to teach the Bible. But I want to say to you, friends, that today is a day of good tidings. And we sit here and enjoy it. But well, what about somebody else? What about getting the word out? You can have part in this ministry, and maybe this is not the ministry that you feel like you ought to have part in. You belong to a good Bible church. You ought to support that church and probably missionaries through that church. You ought to be interested today. As one man said to me, he says, I can't speak, I can't teach, I can't sing, I can't do anything. He says, I can make money. And believe me, God's given him that. I told him, I said, I think that's a gift from God. That man can't even lose money. He bought a piece of real estate to make it a tax write-off. And for some strange reason, that became one of the most valuable pieces. A, A factory and a subdivision went in. And he had the key piece of real estate. He bought it for a tax write-off. Instead of that, it increased his taxes, which he didn't like at all. But God wants you to have part in getting the word out. This is a day of good tidings, friends. And we hold our peace. We ought to get the word of God out. There's a tremendous message here. And, of course, the children of Israel came in. The king and all the people came in and found food enough to feed an army of probably 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. Man, that'd be a lot of food, you see. And here they've got an abundance of food. So much so that the supermarket in Samaria, they had a big sale, by the way. And you could buy food cheap, and you didn't have to go and buy an ass's head because you wouldn't want that kind. You could go buy a filet mignon. This is the difference that has taken place. And the prophecy of Elisha was literally fulfilled. Now, the children of Israel haven't turned to God because the famine's relieved. And in chapter 8, we're told, verse 1, Then spake Elisha unto the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise, and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst, sojourned, for the Lord hath called for a famine, and it shall also come upon the land seven years. And the woman arose, did after the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now the famine has come, and she left the land, went to the Philistines. Now, this was again a judgment of God upon the northern kingdom. And it came to pass at the seven years end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines, and she went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. And the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. And it came to pass, he was telling the king I restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son he'd restored to life cried to the king for a house, for a land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. Now we're told that the king then made a ruling that her property was to be restored to her and all the fruit of the land. Now, here is another incident in the life of Elisha that's quite remarkable. Now, you will recall that the king in the north had attempted to slay him. He wanted to capture him and slay him. But now he's an old man and he's sick. And what happens? Verse 7, And Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, saying, the man of God is come hither. Now the king thought that Elisha would restore him to life. And he's not about to take the life of Elisha in view of the fact that his own life may hang in the hands of this man, so he'll not touch a hair of his head. Verse 8, And the king said unto Haziel, Take a present in thine hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, "Shall I recover of this disease? Haziel went to meet him, and Haziel is the man that is the captain of the host here of the king. We had a reference to him back in chapter 19 of First Kings, verse 15. The Lord said unto him, Go return." on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Now, you see, this man Haziel had already been anointed king. He was to follow Ben-Hadad. Haziel is just waiting around, frankly, for old Ben-Hadad to die. That was always the problem of being a king in those days. It was very difficult for your successor, whether it be a son or a general or someone else, to shed very many tears, my friend, at your funeral, because it was your funeral that would bring him to power. So Haziel he went out to meet him. And I do not think he did it with a great deal of enthusiasm. But he brought quite a gift from the king to Elisha. Notice the message that Elisha gave. Elisha said unto him, Go say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover. That's what he wanted to hear, that he'd recover. Howbeit, the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. <laughs> Elisha said, I know what you'd like to hear, that he'll recover. And I think that he did it with tongue and cheek, because Hazel doesn't want to hear that. But of course, Ben-Hadad would want to hear that. And he says, he's not going to recover, he'll die. The Lord has shown me that. Verse 11, and he settled his countenance steadfastly until he was ashamed. Old Haziel, when he heard that, well, you can see him there. Smirk comes over his face and a smile because he's going to become king, you see. But notice what Elisha does. And the man of God wept. And Haziel is amazed. He says, why weepest my Lord? Well, this was the man that was seeking your life. And you're weeping? He said, no, I'm not weeping for him. This is what he said. He answered, because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire. Their young men wilt thou slay with the sword, and will dash their children and rip up their women with child. You see, Elisha loved his people. He loved his God. He loved the service God had given to him as a prophet. But now this is a heartbreak, because Ben-Hadad, who'd been bad enough, but Hazael is going to be worse. Although Elijah had anointed him king, and Hazael professes that he wasn't even thinking along that line at all. Hazael said, But what is thy servant, a dog, that he should do this great thing? Now, I don't know whether he was a dog or not. He did it. And Elisha answered, The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. And so he departed from Elisha, came to his master, who said unto him, What said Elisha to thee? And he answered, He told me that thou should surely recover. What a lie. And Elisha, that's what Elisha meant. He said, Of course, he'd like to hear he's going to recover, and that's what you're going to tell him. But he's not. He's going to die. And the thing broke this man's heart. Now we have in the rest of this chapter this which is almost confusing to us unless you have our chart and we'll follow along very carefully. Verse 16, In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah, Jehoram the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. And we're told that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. Why? Why? "...for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord." You see why God doesn't go for mixed marriages. Now we begin to see that Israel is going down as a great nation. Libna revolts against them and succeeds. You have the death of Jehoram, and he was buried in the city of David, and Ahaziah reigned in his stead. And he became king. And Ahaziah joined Jehoram in the north, and they went against the Syrians. And Jehoram is wounded. He went back to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Now we see that the northern kingdom is beginning to go down. They'll shortly go into captivity. Now today, we come to this ninth chapter of 2 Kings, and we find here where we left off last time, and we need to keep that in mind, that Ahaziah, the king of Judah, went up to visit Jehoram and Jezreel because Jehoram had been wounded in battle, and he was up there recovering, and apparently was a very sick man. Now, chapter 9 opens with verse 1 now. And Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, and take this box of oil in thine hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up, from among his brethren, and carry him to an inner chamber. Then take the box of oil, pour it on his head, and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then open the door, and flee, and tarry not. So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Now he did this thing that Elisha had commanded him to do. And you'll notice Elisha's not spectacular in what he does. You would think to anoint a king, he would not have sent a young prophet. He would have done it himself. Samuel, you remember, came and anointed David. He had also anointed Saul. Now, you would think that Elisha would want to be the one to anoint the king, but he didn't. The thing that he did was to send this young prophet up. And this young prophet anointed Jehu the king. And he did it secretly and privately. Now, there may be a good explanation for it, and I think that probably had Elisha gone up, they would have suspected something. But when just one of these unknown young men went up, why, no one suspected what really he'd come to do. And so Jehu is anointed king, and here is one of the bloodiest rascals that we'll meet on the page of Scripture. And yet he did the will of God, In many respects. Now, verse 8, for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male member. And none will be left in Israel. And I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then, verse 10, and the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel. And there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Now, this is repeating the thing that Elijah had said would happen to the house of Ahab and to Jezebel. Now, notice the executioner for this is this man Jehu. And we're told, verse 11, "...and Jehu came forth to the servants of his lord, and one said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore came this mad fellow to thee? And he said unto them, Ye know the man and his communication." And they said, It's false." Tell us now. And he said, Thus and thus spake he to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed the king over Israel. Now, believe me, that put them all in a flurry, and they began to move about, and they blew the trumpets and said, Jehu is king. But you see, Jehoram is up there sick, and Ahaziah has gone up to visit him. And what is going to happen in Jezreel now? Well, this is the thing that he's going to do. He goes up to Jezreel, and he had actually sent up first those to spy out the land, and they came back and reported, these men are discovered now. Jehu is coming up to visit him, and the king asked the question, is it peace? And Jehu said, what hast thou to do with peace? Turn thee behind me, and the watchman told, saying, the messenger came to them, but he cometh not again. The messengers that were sent out to meet Jehu never came back to report to the king. Why? Because Jehu is coming up to exterminate this king. And also he killed Ahaziah and he destroyed him also. So Ahaziah is slain. We're told that verse 27 not only was Jehoram slain, but when Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu followed after him, and said, smite him also in the chariot. And they did so at the going up to Ger, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in the sepulchre with his fathers in the city of David. And he was keeping bad company, by the way, of the house of Ahab, And he was in a pretty bad spot. And so when Jehu came up to do this, why, he destroys him. Now you come to that which is indeed frightening, and it is the slaying of Jezebel. But this woman had been a bloody, mean woman. I'm going to read verse 30. When Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her face, tired her head, and looked out. At the window. All right, now let's take a look at this, because this is something that reveals what a terrible person she was. She was a member, actually, of a royal family, and she apparently had been one of the most beautiful women of her day and of all history. I think that Jezebel, as a young woman, would compare with Helen of Troy with Cleopatra, Salome, and Catherine de' Medici. And when Ahab and Jezebel married, it was the society event of the year. The best people of the two kingdoms were there, and there was a surplus of royalty. It was respectable and dignified, and not even an Elijah could find fault. The common people of both realms celebrated. She was a daughter of Athbal, king of the Zidonians, And it should be added also that the demons of hell joined the festivities and they laughed with glee and the devil was glad because crepe was on the gate of heaven and angels wept. Instead of wedding bells, it was a funeral dirge. And that's heaven's view, I think, and the world's view that's always in conflict and would be of this world today. Why is the world optimistic and heaven pessimistic? Well, God looks on the heart, and man only has a short view. Jezebel is one, I think, of the most remarkable women in history. She was capable, she was influential, and a dominant personality, and apparently cold as a fish, and probably sexless, but beautiful. Her evil influence was felt in three kingdoms, and extended beyond her lifetime. Her notorious life became a proverb. She poured a stream of poison into the stream of history. And scripture never mentions her again until you come to the end of the Bible. Her name is suggestive. It means unmarried, chaste. And you have here a veiled suggestion of an abnormality and a perversion. She was feminine with a masculine touch, seductive and alluring. Hollywood brazenly calls it sex appeal. She was the Bridget Bardot of her day. Strong men yielded to her seductive charm. No one resisted her, not even Ahab. She dominated him and ruled the northern kingdom. She introduced the worship of Baal. She imported 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Astarte. She was reckless, violent, and rapacious, and ferocious. She killed God's prophets. God's people went underground. She engineered a marriage of her daughter to the house of David. And the very interesting thing is that this woman now thinks that the end has come. During her long reign as the consort of Ahab, no person dared to oppose her, and her will was supreme. There is one exception. That was Elijah. Elijah. And she almost exterminated all the prophets. She is the the Clytemnestra of Greek tragedy. She is the Lady Macbeth of Shakespeare. Her crimes were many. Blood flowed freely from her influence. None resisted. It seemed as if God was in hiding and doing nothing. Then she committed her crowning crime. She slew Naboth that Ahab might possess the vineyard. It was high-handed, cold-blooded murder, and a dastardly deed, and heaven could no longer remain silent. God's patience was exhausted, and he sent Elijah. And the day came now for the reckoning of it all. First it was Ahab, died just as the prophet said he would, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the thing's going to happen to this woman that she'll be trodden underfoot and the dogs will eat her, and she'll not even have a decent burial. Fourteen years elapsed after the death of Ahab. Jezebel did not believe God's word would ever be fulfilled. She was unmoved. She defied God. She stayed on in Jezreel. And perhaps the death of Ahab was just a coincidence. Jezebel could get by. Nothing could happen to her. But you know there's a law of God written in neon lights in every sphere in the crosswords of the world. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. And with what measure ye meet, it'll be measured unto you, the Lord Jesus said. Now did Jezebel get by with it? I turn now to the most sordid and sadistic chapter in history. It's gruesome. It's ghastly, and it's a gory sight, and added to that, it's grisly. It's revolting and repulsive here on the page of Scripture. Jezebel is the queen mother. She's living in luxury in the palace of Jezreel. And the terrible prophecy of that horrible man, Elijah, has not been fulfilled. Out of the north came a swift chariot. Jehu was driving furiously. He slew two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah. Jezebel saw her own son brutally slain before her, and she put on sackcloth and ashes. Now, what does she do? While she painted her face, she tired her head, she looked out a window. This proud queen still thought she could seduce her captor and captivate him with her charms. But she's got a grandson twenty three years old. She's no longer young. She's an old woman now, and Revlon and Helen Curtis and Max Factor combined couldn't help her at all. They had no secret formulas for lotions, powders, sprays and creams to make this faded queen look attractive. She looks out from the window and she uses flattery. Notice Verse 31, and as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, had Zimri peace who slew his master. She says, can't we get together and talk this over? Come up and see me sometimes. That's what she's saying. And notice this man. He lifted up his face to the window and said, who's on my side? Who? There looked out to him two or three eunuchs. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. He was unmoved, untouched. He was without pity and without mercy. And notice this. She does not awe Jehu. She has no appeal for him. He does not even respect her. He said, throw her down. They threw her down. She bounced like a rubber ball and broke open like a ripe watermelon. This is the most frightful, terrible, and vivid picture in all the annals of tragedy. Hammond says history presents no parallel to such an indignity. It's truly unprecedented. A queen mother should be treated with respect. Now notice, verse 34, When he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, Go see now this cursed woman, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. How could he enjoy a hearty meal after he had done this awful thing? Frankly, he's a fiend in human form. He's a rough soldier. No courtesy, no chivalry, just crude ambition. Not shrink from any crime. He's depraved and degraded, and it's briefly related in the remainder of the story. He sends them out to bury her, but the dogs had already eaten her, and they found only the skull and the palm of her hands, and the dogs had had a big gourmet meal also. My friend, there's no laughter in heaven because of this, and there's no mourning either. The seraphim are saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, and the angels proclaim just and righteous for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her, and a holy God is vindicated. And the psalmist had said, Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, and it's fulfilled. God says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And now judgment has come upon the house of Ahab, and that's not all. We find now in chapter 10 that the judgment is still falling fast. The house of Ahab is exterminating by the slaying of his 70 sons. Jehu slays what remained. And may I say, he also kills the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. He's a mean rascal, and that's exactly what he is. But I want you to notice what is said here. I begin reading at verse 1. Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, Now as soon as this letter come to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also in armor, look even out of the best, and meetest of your master's son, and set him on his father's throne "...and fight for your master's house." Now, he pretends as if he is going to support the house of Ahab. And what did he do? Well, he didn't do that. We are told in verse 11, "...so Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men, his kinfolks, his priests, and he left them none remaining. And he arose and departed and came to Samaria." And as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are ye? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. And he said, Take them alive. They took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house. Even two and forty men, neither left he any of them. But one of them was spared, by the way, and it was a descendant of the house of Saul. We're told when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab. And by the way, Jeremiah calls him Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right as my heart is with thy heart? That is, are you a friend of foe? And Jehonadab answered, It is, that is, if it be, give me thine hand. He gave him his hand, took him up in his chariot. Now we are told in verse 18, Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much, and therefore call unto me all the prophets of Baal. Now he brings together all the prophets of Baal under this false statement, because He didn't intend to worship Baal. And when all the prophets came together, he slew them. And we are told, though, that he didn't turn to God. He slew the prophets of Baal, but he didn't turn to the prophet of God. Verse 29, Howbeit from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them, to wit the golden calves that were in Bethel, that were in Dan. He went back to the calf worship that Jeroboam had established. Not the worship of Baal now and the gods of the Sidonians, but now actually the calf worship that apparently had come out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he did not turn to the Lord. But notice how just God is and righteous in these matters. The Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well... In executing that which is right in mine eyes, and as done unto the house of Ahab, according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. In other words, God took note of the fact that he had eliminated the house of Ahab, although it was done in a very brutal and terrible way. Somebody says, can you condone this? Well, of course. God makes the wrath of man to praise him, friends. We need to recognize today that our God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. Now, verse 32: In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short, and Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel. Now, what is happening here? Well, the thing that is happening is that the northern kingdom is getting ready to go into captivity. It's decline from now on, and there will be this decline. Uh, it will ultimately end in disaster and carried away into captivity in Assyria. Now, it is true that Jehu had eliminated all of the line of Ahab in the northern kingdom. But you see, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, had married into the line of the king of Judah, in David's line. And she is going to perform a very bloody, terrible thing. In fact, it's an amazing thing. It's one that seems unbelievable. But my friend, this is what happens when people depart from God. We think today we are very civilized. We talk a great deal about peace And we have carried on, beginning with World War II, down to the present, one of the bloodiest wars the world has ever seen. We talk about how civilized we are, and yet it is safer in the jungles of Africa and South America than it is on the streets of the cities of this country of ours. My friend, may I say to you today that a gross departure from God has brought upon us all of our troubles. Now, friends, we've come to the 11th chapter here of 2 Kings, and very candidly, this continues to be a very gory and grisly section of the Word of God. The story of Ahab and Jezebel is not a pretty period, and you probably thought we were through with them, but we're not. We're talking in the 11th chapter about a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, And believe me, she took after both Mama and Papa. She is mean. She is one of the meanest of all of them. Now, she had married into the family of David. And when she found out that her son, who was the king, you remember, he was sick. And what happened was that her son was put to death by Jehu. Well, now, when that happened, will you notice what she did? And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the seed royal. Well, as long as he lived, she actually was the queen. She controlled him. She was very much like this woman Jezebel, and she controlled him. But now a grandson would come to the throne, and she doesn't want him on the throne, of course. She's afraid she wouldn't be able to control him and she'd lose her position. So, what did she do? You talk about a bloodthirsty act. She slew, actually, all of the line of David that she could get her hands on. In other words, she would exterminate the line of David, and this was another attempt of Satan to destroy the line that's leading to Jesus Christ. But as the Lord down in Egypt had preserved Moses, and the people were not slain, but were delivered out of Egypt, and as we'll see again in the time of old Haman, who attempted to exterminate them, well, here again, and this is by this woman, Athaliah, who was the queen mother at this time. Now, what happened was she thought she'd killed all of them, but she had not gotten all, because we're told, but Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. And he was with her hid in the house of the Lord six years. And Athaliah did reign over the land. You see, when she exterminated the line, why, she came to the throne. And she's now ruling alone, and that's the way she wanted it. She was very much like a mother, Jezebel. Now we are told that this little fella is being brought up, and he's six years old. Verse 4, "...and the seventh year Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard, and brought them to him into the house of the Lord, and made a covenant with them, and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord, and showed them the king's son." The rulers were brought in. I think they were tired of this woman, Athaliah, anyway. And they knew how bloodthirsty she was. And when they discovered that there was a son in the line of David, why, it brought encouragement and joy and hope to them. And he commanded them, verse 5, now saying, This is the thing that ye shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part shall be at the gate of Sur. And a third part at the gate behind the guard so shall ye keep the watch of the house that it be not broken down. And two parts of all you that go forth on the sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord about the king. And ye shall compass the king round about every man. Now, you notice the extra precautions that are taken to preserve the life of this little fellow. Because you know that his life would not have been worth... Uh, plugged nickel if this woman, Athaliah, had been able to get to him. She would have slain him. And after all, his uh, grandson, may I say to you, this woman is as heartless as Jezebel was. Well, we're told that they protected this little fellow until they were able now to bring him before the people. And I dropped down to read verse 11. And the guard stood every man with his weapons in his hand round about the king from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar in the temple. And he brought forth the king's son, put the crown upon him, and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him. They clapped their hands and said, God save the king. This was a great day, you see, for the southern kingdom. Now, to know that there was one left in the line of David. It looked very discouraging there for a while. Now, notice verse 13. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. You see, she hadn't been invited. And when she heard all of the clamor that was taking place, she evidently was in the palace of David, which was on Mount Zion, right above. The temple area. She could hear the noise. And now she proceeds down there. Verse 14 And when she looked, and behold, the king stood by a pillar, as the manna was, and the princes, and the trumpeters by the king, and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athaliah ran her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. Well, that's her idea of treason, of course. But Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that followeth her kill with a sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. They laid hands on her. She went by the way by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there was she slain. She tried to flee. And there was no way in the world for her to have her trial transferred to another district where she would be expected to receive a fair trial. They just executed her right there and saved an appeal to the Supreme Court, got rid of her, which was, I think, a very proper thing to do at that time. Now, the removal of this woman took a dark cloud off of the southern kingdom And now this little fella, he's just a boy, and naturally he had to have the counselors to rule in his stead. And one of them was the man that had engineered all this, and it was Jehoiada. And Jehoiada is the one that was in on all of this. And he had been the one that had led in the execution of this woman, Athaliah. Now, I'm reading verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. Now, this is the beginning, this man who was the priest now. He leads in a movement to return to the worship of Jehovah. And the worship of Baal, you see, had penetrated even into Judah, and it was prevalent. I think that people were going to the temple of the Lord, but they also were worshiping Baal at the same time. The same old thing, be religious on Sunday, then live for the devil the rest of the week. And there are a great many church members doing that today. And then they wonder why that the church is so dead today. Well, the explanation is... Not found in a building, it's found in the people. That's where the deadness lies at the present time. Now, this is the beginning of a great spiritual movement that is nothing short of a revival. Will you notice this? And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal. They break it down, his altars and his images. Broke they in pieces thoroughly, and they slew Matan... The priest availed before the altars, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the rulers over hundreds, and the captains, and the guard, and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord, and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was in quiet. And they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. Seven years old was Jehoash when he began to reign. Or we can call him Joash, if you please, because that is actually what his name was. Now here in the 12th chapter, we have the reign of this little fella. And you can see who is the man engineering all of this was the high priest Jehoiada, and this is the beginning of a great spiritual movement that I would call revival, actually. I think probably at this juncture we might, as it were, have a roll call of these kings. There was a total, actually, of 19 kings that reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel. And there was a total of 20 kings that reigned over the southern kingdom. Now, among the 19 kings over Israel, not one of them could be labeled a righteous king. Actually, the only thing you could say is every one of them was a bad king, not a good one in the lot, sort of like olives in California. You probably have seen in your supermarket the olives that come from our great state, they come in three sizes. They have large, and then larger, and then jumbo. There's no such thing as a small olive. Well, there was no such thing as a good king among these kings in the northern kingdom. Now, in the southern kingdom, where they had 20, 10 of them could be considered good. Five of them are exceptional, and during those periods there were five periods of reformation and revival. All of this reformation and blessing that came was incubated in the nest of spiritual revival. And these brief periods of respite, they kept the fires burning on the altars that were all but extinguished at other times. Five times revival flared up like a forest fire swept through the nation. Not a fire of destruction, but construction, and instruction. And God visited his people with a heaven-sent time of refreshing. And there was the turning to the word of God, the worship of God. And there was power, there was prosperity. And when a revival comes, my friend... There'll be new joy today in the church. There will be renewed power in the church. And there'll be new love. And all of these are lacking today. In the average church in this land of ours, I think I know it pretty well because I've been all over this country today, that is in many, many places, and I see that these are the things that are lacking today. Now, the thing that is important for revival is a return to the Word of God. Then there will be prayer, and then there will be repentance. But first of all, there must be a return to the Word of God. That is something that you will find has been back of every great spiritual revival. Now, I personally believe we can have revival today. Dr. Griffith Thomas said years ago, I cannot see anywhere in Scripture that revival of the true church is contrary to the will of God. And then Dr. R.A. Tauri said, There is no such teaching in Scripture as that revival is contrary to God's will. And Dr. James M. Gray said, We recall nothing in the epistles justifying the conclusion that the experiences of the early church may not be repeated today. And we need that. We need revival. Now, this is an interesting section for us. Now, notice chapter 12. This little fellow begins to grow up. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash, or Joash, began to reign. And 40 years reigned he in Jerusalem. In other words, he reigned till he was 47 years old. And his mother's name was Zabiah of Beersheba. You notice how the mothers are given. They had a tremendous influence on these kings, their sons. Now we are told, "...and Jehoash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all his days, wherein Jehoiada the priest instructed him." Now you can see, this man was taught in the Word of God. And my friend, what we need today are not these empty-headed politicians who are everlastingly coming up with a nostrum. They have, and they're criticizing all the other parties and all of the other politicians, but they've got the answer. May I say to you, we need some man and man who are instructed in the word of God and know God today. We need a spiritual renewing in this land, and it can only come through the word of God. Notice this, Jehoiada, the priest instructed Jehoash or Joash, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. So you see when you say revival, well, it didn't mean everybody had turned to God. They were still going. Then we find here that even among the priests, there were those that were not revived at all. We are told that Joash said to the priests, "...all the money of the dedicated things that's brought into the house of the Lord, even the money of every one that passeth, the account, the money that every man is set at, and all the money that cometh into any man's heart to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it to them, every man of his acquaintance, and let them repair the breaches of the house." "...wheresoever any breach shall be found." You see, the temple was in disrepair. It needed to be repaired. And what happened was, the priests, they took the money, but they didn't use it to repair the breaches in the house. "...and King Joash called for Jehoiada the priest and the other priests, and said unto them, Why repair ye not the breaches of the house? Now therefore receive no more money of your acquaintance, but deliver it for the breaches of the house. And the priest consented to receive no more money of the people, neither to repair the breaches of the house. It's the same old story. I think that very candidly you can test a church or a Christian by his use or abuse of money. I've observed that down through the years. They say today, you know, in a church, well, let's make so-and-so the treasurer. Put him on the board of deacons. He's a good businessman. May I say to you, you better find out whether he's a spiritual man or not. That's the thing that's important. And so what did they do? Well, they had to fix a box so the priests couldn't get their hands in it. But Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest, bored a hole in the lid of it, and set it beside the altar on the right side, as one cometh into the house of the Lord. And the priest that kept the door put therein all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord. That was a pretty good idea, by the way. I think you need to have an accounting today. And I mean an accounting that is accurate. Anyone can juggle figures. And I've seen that done in church work, my friend. That is absolutely a disgrace. Well, they call this Joash's box or his chest. And you've heard of the chest of Joash. It's used today by many organizations to raise money. And I wonder sometimes if they really recognize the background of it. It was a chest fix so that the deacons and the preachers and others and religious racketeers couldn't get their hand in it. That was always a pretty good way of doing it, my friend. And if you want a chest of Joash, this is it. Well, there came a great spiritual movement in the land, but... Actually, the nation is beginning to go down. And we're told, verse 17, Then Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath, and he took it, and Hazael set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And Joash, king of Judah, took all the hallowed things that Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah's father's king of Judah had dedicated in his own hallowed things and all the gold that was found in the treasures of the house of the Lord and in the king's house and sent it to Hazael, king of Syria, and he went away from Jerusalem. In other words, he's just buying time. He had to buy them all. And now we have the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah. We'll talk more about revival, by the way, when we get to the book of Chronicles, the two books there. We're told that his servants arose, made a conspiracy, and slew Joach. You see, he was just 47 years old. And we're told then his servants smote him and he died. They buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, reigned in his stead. And we are going to next time see the reign of Amaziah. And you'll find out he's also a good king. Joash was a good king. Amaziah will be a good king. And then Azariah comes to the throne, we know him as Uzziah, and he reigned. And during that time was when Isaiah began his prophetic ministry. This will be a great period for the southern kingdom. But during this period, we're going to see the northern kingdom go into captivity. This will be the period that will see the end of the northern kingdom.